a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. I'm just your average, everyday concert school board member. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. You'll find all our shows archived there so you can go back into the dusty past and relive the greatest moments of off the record i'm joined by chris ryan who's here all decked out in his baseball gear wearing an ancient cap from the montreal expos chris ryan welcome to off the record do the montreal expos even exist anymore they haven't existed for about uh, 14 years at this point man oh man that I guess miss them? that dates me. Apparently I not. miss them terribly. <laughs> because, uh, but I do like the hat. It's got red, white, and blue. A big M and then red, white, and blue. And speaking of red, white, and blue, it brings to mind uh, the patriotic fervor on display in the United States House of Representatives when Robert Mueller testified, a great patriot he is, testified for days and days, well, no, actually hours and hours on end, first to the Judiciary Judiciary Committee and then to the Intelligence Committee. And some of the people on the Intelligence Committee are smart and some of the people on the Judiciary Committee are judicious. But Democrats were not overly pleased with his performance. He, they were not overly pleased with his performance because it was somewhat boring. It was monosyllabic. It was kind of disappointing to a lot of people who wanted fireworks. But I don't know what they were expecting. Robert Mueller is a man of few words, a stoic, steady kind of guy that you can't get a word out of edgewise. And he proved his stoic, steady, kind of quiet, kind of doesn't say much guy in front of the House committees. And boy, oh boy, the Democrats kept trying to get him to say something. But basically it was yes, no, correct, it's in the report, or I'm not talking about it. There was a lot of I'm not talking about it. And it kind of leaves Democrats in a quandary. Chris Ryan, where does it leave Democrats? Well, I mean... It leaves Democrats where it was going to leave them to begin with. I mean, there was never going to be a smoking gun within the the Mueller report unless Paul Manafort or someone else was willing to talk about what took place. There wasn't going to be a, dear Vladimir, in exchange for you interfering in the election, I would wish, wish for this to take place. The way that it, the whole collusion existed was a loose relationship of, I'm going to help you, you're going to help me, wink, nod, and that's kind of the the end of it um there was never going to be a, a suitcase exchange with marked dollar bills and it is this is this is a, a, a fantasy um robert Mueller did exactly what he was supposed to do and that was to push forth a a report which uh had information um that which would lead congress to act in one way or another and what we're seeing 
is a complete lack of will on the part of Democrats. Everybody criticizes Republicans for being complicit with Trump. But Democrats control the House. And they, on a day-in-day-out basis, whether it's Adam Schiff or others, will cite the various atrocities that Donald Trump has committed. And if none of those things are worth them moving forward with impeachment, if this is the worst president ever, and they don't have the will to go and impeach him, what does that say? Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, what Mueller's report showed was that there were about 126 separate contacts between members of the Trump campaign and Russians, that the Trump campaign and Trump were perfectly happy and willing to encourage and accept uh, help that the Russians were provided, including in public, as you recall, Trump on the debate stage, Russia, if you're listening. Um, so, I mean, so we know that. And I agree with you that the Mueller report uh, could not find, as he put it, sufficient evidence to establish a conspiracy on the Russian interference. What it did establish beyond a doubt is a dangerous, far-reaching, systematic scheme by the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election and break, uh, which they did, uh, which Trump basically has continually denied. Um, But that's not something about which uh, he can be indicted if he denies that what his intelligence people and Mueller say happened, happened. You can't indict him for it. But as Mueller did point out, accepting foreign help Uh, to win an election by a presidential campaign is unethical, it's wrong, it's unpatriotic. And it's acting outside of the best interests of the United States and what he uh, affirmed to do in in swearing in his president. Absolutely, but that's still, uh, uh, Mueller did not find that he... But that's an impeachable offense. That's correct. Mueller did not find uh, that it rose to the level of an indictable uh, crime. Which I agree with. And I think everyone, for the most part, agrees with So there was no smoking gun on that. And it does rise, in my view, to the level of an impeachable offense. Now, let's unpack it just a little further and move to Volume 2. Volume 2 is all about obstruction of justice. And whether or not there was a crime committed by Trump um, uh, in Volume 1, having to do with the Russian interference, once there's an official investigation underway... Um, you can't obstruct it. You can't intimidate witnesses. You can't tell people to lie. You can't um, do everything you can to to try to stop that investigation. So there were uh, 10 separate instances uh, outlined that uh, perhaps rise to the level of impeachable offenses. The the Democrats seem to be caught between principle and politics. Isn't that amazing? Caught between principle and politics. Because on principle, this guy is corrupt uh, and he's led a corrupt administration. Um, And he ought to be impeached. On principle, his conduct rises to the level of impeachable conduct. In politics, the Democrats are apparently afraid as a group. Nancy Pelosi is afraid that an impeachment uh, proceeding in the House, which can't move through the Senate because of Mitch McConnell now, will just upset people. It'll just divert attention. It will just fail, and therefore she makes the political calculation uh, that the Democrats should not do it. And it's really a tough place as a 
an elected representative to be caught between principle and politics. But frankly, that's why we send people to Washington. And if Democrats are not going to act on principle in the face of what is perhaps the most blatant corruption ever uncovered uh, by a president, clear evidence of obstruction of justice and unethical wrongdoing in connection with accepting help from a foreign power to win an election, then what good is the impeachment? Um, uh, po- what good? What good is it? Who? What good is impeachment ever? I mean, what good is it ever? This is the argument I made with John Delaney on my show earlier today in that um, I feel that the precedent here is one that is extremely dangerous in that if you do not act as Congress as a check on this president and you are speaking on a continuous basis about the danger of, of him and what he has committed and you do nothing about it, if you do not impeach him, what does that say about the body moving forward? What does that say about what individuals can do moving forward? Donald Trump, for as much as individuals on the left will you know, talk about his various atrocities and what he has done, Donald Trump is not an ideologue. Donald Trump's pure basis for um, his existence is self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. The concern that I have is what's next? Like, what happens when a person comes comes in and sees what Donald Trump has done and wants to take a fascist direction more in regards to policy as opposed to self-fulfillment? And Donald Trump is just is just moving forward and stampeding all aspects of our democracy and the checks and balances that are supposed to exist. And he continues to have success because individuals appease him. If he is not forced to wear the scarlet eye of impeachment, uh, what does that mean for our country moving forward? If he is, in fact, as Adam Schiff and others say, you know, this individual who fell just short of treason and committed all these various atrocities. But you know what? I'm not quite there yet on impeachment. Democrats are as much to blame for Donald Trump and allowing for his rise and his continuation as Republicans. Because just as Paul Ryan looked aside and said, politics, I'm not going to step in front of Donald Trump because what are the political ramifications? What if the Trump base rises against me? Democrats are doing the exact same thing. They are playing politics with Donald Trump and they're letting him continue to do what he is going to do. And I'm sorry, those are the facts of the situation. Yeah, I the what Democrats can do is obviously limited by the way the Senate is uh, comprised at this point. And impeachment is not going to lead in the removal of this president. But the fact of the matter is that he is being right now treated and appeased the same way by Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats that Paul Ryan and the Republicans did in his rise. And when you do not stand up, he will trample you. You know. And say, oh, well. The election's just around the corner. The election, um, we're gonna, we'll win the election. Well, Ma- well, who hey, says you're going to win the election? Mitch McConnell said the same thing about a Supreme Court justice. Well, we've got to wait till the election before we can have right. hearings on a Supreme Court justice. I mean, so that's venal politics. And, you know, frankly, uh, if you're not going to go 
and do the right thing, then don't bother going. I mean, look, I'm, 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 I'm not patting myself on the back. I, I think back to 2010 uh, when I voted for the Affordable Care Act, which was much reviled. Uh, I lost a Senate race because people were upset with me for voting for the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I thought it was the right thing to do, that we needed to make a step towards reforming health care. I knew that I was likely not going to win my election, but it was important to do the right thing because, frankly, that's what I think the people of New Hampshire expect. They expect people to stand on principle, not merely politics. I think that's what's been lost in our country in terms of statesmanship. I, I have plenty of complaints about the Republicans. We've been bashing Democrats here this morning for not standing up on principle. But the challenge for our democracy uh, comes not only from people like Donald Trump, a greedy crook who only cares about money and power, but it also comes from elected representatives who will not stand on important principle. Because ultimately, politics is about principles. And people get elected or don't get elected because of the principles they stand on. John F. Kennedy wrote a book called Profiles in Courage. Years and years ago, I got a copy of that book because I won the fifth grade history prize in school. I read it and read it and reread it. It was all about people who took tough stands and lost their positions because of those tough stands. But that is what's required to make democracy function. And in this case, some accountability for Donald Trump at the hands of the United States House is called for. The Democrats must move on impeachment, in my view. Uh, I've expressed that on a number of occasions. I still believe it now. I believe it now even more strongly than I believed it before. Uh, and I think that Democrats will pay a terrible price for not standing on principle. There will be a greater price both now and in the future of our republic for Democrats who do not stand up and stand on principle than uh, if they only consider the politics. How many Democrats criticized you know, Jeff Flake or would criticize John McCain at times or criticize uh, Marco Rubio, Susan Collins, because they would make strong statements about Donald Trump, but then when it came down to it, they wouldn't do anything about it. And this is exactly what's taking place here. And I think you, you make a, a really good point in regards to the courage of, of conviction. And the Democrats right now have a rise of the progressive left, very similar to what we saw in the Tea Party and um, the Republican Party uh, back in 2010. And the, right now, yeah, Annie Custer and, and Chris Pappas and Maggie Hassan and Gene Jaheen might not have uh, primary opponents, but we, the rise of the left is taking place, and you see it in a sub substantial way. And um, again, the direction that we're headed in, heading in, where Donald Trump has been able to stampede through all of the precedent, um, whether it's you know, what we believe a president should do. I think most individuals never thought that we'd have a day where a president would um, seek, receive indirectly or directly help from a hostile foreign power in order to achieve elective success. A lot of this is, is unimaginable. The amount of stonewalling that takes place, the way the press is treated, the fact that there's no um, you know, press availability anymore, a, daily, a briefing doesn't exist anymore, the the democracy of our, our nation is under attack 
right now the um, the leader uh, of this fascist ish type of movement is one that does not have any ideological um, perspective or real centered p- He's uh, an point of opportunistic infection. It, right, and, but he has taken he is the the velociraptor who has tested the walls in jurassic park and now there's other people who are sitting behind and saying oh this is how this looks and it's what happens next and after that is concerning and if you do not stop donald trump now and at least put him in place where um he is uh, trampling on our democracy we're going to see significant effects of this down the road from the left or the right. So the, the challenge, folks, before we close out this segment, the challenge is the loss of statesmanship. I mean that without being gender specific, but it's the loss of statesmanship that requires standing on principles higher than yourself, looking beyond your own election to the good of the country, looking to the future, Right now, we seem to have had a loss of statesmanship on both the left and the right. I mean, certainly on the right, but now uh, on the left in terms of the courage to do the right thing, which is to move forward on impeachment of this corrupt president. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com. I've been joined by Chris Ryan uh, for some perspective on where the country is and where the country's going. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more fun stuff on Off the Record with Paul Hodes after this. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find us uh, archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also now a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for you 21st century aficionados of the fast-moving thumbs. You can find us on your cell phone, on your tablets, on your computers, or whatever other personal devices I may not have mentioned. I am really pleased to be joined in this segment by my good friend, Miriam Carter, from the League of New Hampshire craftsmen to talk about the league, their work, the fabulous things they're doing, and their upcoming League of New Hampshire annual Craftsman's Fair at Mount Sunapee, which is on from August 3rd through August 11th of 2019. A slam bang, thank you ma'am, extravaganza of crafts with food and frolic and tents and craftspersons and music and demonstrations. It's just one of the best things that happens in New Hampshire all year. And it's been a tradition, Miriam, for how long? This is our 86th annual Craftsman's Fair. That's unbelievable. It is. And by the way, I'm going to take you on the road as a PR firm. You're amazing. Thank you for your enthusiasm. It is an incredibly exciting event, and we always look forward to it. Oh, well, I mean, I've, I've, I've been going every year forever and ever and ever. I mean, at least at least for me, 30, 
35, 30 plus years, maybe 40 years at this point. Wow. I mean, and and in the early days, in my early, in my early <laughs> days, not necessarily the early days of the fair, but in my early days, um, Pego and I uh, played music there. Uh, we played music there every year for, I don't know, maybe 10 years in a wow. variety of formats. We played uh yeah, we had a, we had a band called Pegasus. We played with the earliest incarnations of that band before we were doing music for kids and families. We played acoustically. We played when we were playing music for kids and families under the tent. Mm. We were the featured performers uh, often. Wow. Yeah. So um, I have you know fond fond yeah. memories, and one of one of the early members that we played with was a was a dear friend. Uh, and a potter who was a league juried craftsman named Dwight Graves, mm-hmm. and uh, so he he was our bass player for for, oh, nice. a, for a long time. I love that in the early days. So I have very fond memories. Yeah. Well, you're part of our fabric. I'm glad to hear that. That woven into <laughs> the patchwork quilt <laughs> of the of the league, and many are. Yeah. So, so so let's just talk a little bit about this incredible organization because it. It really does stand as a national icon, uh, as an organization, in terms of what it, how it was formed, and its groundbreaking work and the impact it's had. Take us back. Give us a little historical context for the league and its founding. Certainly. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about the league and its historic history. Uh, essentially, we were created after the Great Depression. Um, and we had quite a relationship with the state of New Hampshire in becoming an organization. Um, the, the, a group of individuals basically up north <coughs> learned or were creating work and um, trying to find revenue and sold it. So we're talking about soap and candles and homemade crafts. And Governor Winant realized that this was potentially an industry. And so the state got involved to support it and eventually helped develop the League of New Hampshire Arts and Crafts. That kind of home industry led to greater craft development, which um, led to, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. David Campbell was the executive director for 25 years during really the most critical time for the League when he and the members of the league helped to develop criteria that would define what was good craft, what was quality craft. Um, And those are our media categories to this day, meaning jewelry, glass, wood, and the criteria for each category in the making it as well as the inspiration. We currently have a, um, a reference point, which is also the spirit of the maker, because you may learn a craft, but your, your individual voice has to come to um, fruition. And so, that's all part of um, what we do. We have a jury process, which is nationally recognized as a really important process that other organizations have based their process and membership on. So we're very proud of it, and we have a rich history, and we're known nationally and actually internationally. Many of our members have reached uh, I- impressive fame over the years. So 86 years of the fair was did the fair happen from the beginning of the founding no it started up north basically in you know like on picnic tables things like that just a very simple environment then it went to um sandwich and then it eventually moved up to the mountain we've been at the mountain for about uh, 57 years and so that's a partnership with the state before we partnered with the state now we're partnering with the leaseholder of the state park uh or excuse me the state ski area which is vale corporation so um, my math is terrible. What year was the league founded? 1932. 
So, I mean, think about the state of the nation in 1932. Um, from from that perspective, uh, thinking back, that's almost 100 years mm-hmm. um, now. Things were very, very different. Um, probably uh, no highways. No um, highways. No Internet. <laughs> Um, uh, a very New Hampshire was an incredibly rural uh, state. It still is mm-hmm. very rural, but um, it was uh, it was really old fashioned, and so there was no uh, concentrated or organized movement around craft at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you said, these were people who were making candles and soap at home. And who kind of got the idea that that they maybe ought to do something together to help sales of of homemade stuff to survive to I mean, survive really survival right and and I dare say that around the nation uh, the same was true. There was no at that time no organized movement around around craft no and now I mean we're in this period for it's so fascinating to me that at a time when when we're in the digital age of fast-flowing information and artificial intelligence is threatening jobs and um, kids are focused on their screens to the exclusion of everything else and it seems like we have a collective uh, AD, uh, ADD in terms of being able to focus on something for very long, you have at the same time this explosion of of extraordinary craftsmanship uh, and the dedication to the patience, persistence, artistic uh, ability that it takes to craft something beautiful and handmade mm-hmm. that that springs from the creative vision of these extraordinary uh, artists. And for me, it's, it's fascinating because while um, great performance art has always been with us, I would, I would hypothesize that this, this explosion nationally of, of fine craft started in New Hampshire. And started with the league, um, and has spread around the country. You can now go almost anywhere in the country and find stores dedicated to fine craft, mm-hmm. and that that is new. It's also very exciting, and it's also in some ways an antidote to modern times. Well said. So David Campbell, who I mentioned before, left the league after twenty-five years. And um, during his time at the League and then beyond, he actually went on to help create the American Craft Council and larger organizations around the country. So we definitely definitely have our footprint everywhere. And then potters like Otto Heino, he learned at the League. He married um, uh, one of the, the, our teachers, Vivica. Um, there's currently an exhibit at Colby Sawyer that we're a part of um, honoring that um, 
honoring his work. But he moved to California, brought his pottery there, which then, you know, kind of spread the knowledge of pottery even greater. So we definitely have a huge impact on the movement. And to speak to what you're talking about these times, I would have to say that I'm really excited about these times because we have a lot of challenges because of the, the screen time and people's attention spans. But at this time in our culture, I think it's more important than ever that we recognize the handmade and how it contributes to our quality of life. Our membership does that every day of their life when they create their craft. Um, our job now is to keep craft relevant and the makers of relevant and bringing young people, young audiences to understand craft and its importance to life. Mm. We're talking with Miriam Carter here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Miriam is the executive director of the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen, uh, an extraordinary organization of juried uh, craftspersons whose artistic integrity and work is unparalleled. The annual League of New Hampshire Craftsmen's Fair is coming up at Mount Sunapee from August 3rd through August 11th. Get there early in the day because parking is always fun. Uh, spend the day with crafts and tents and music and food and fun. Um, we're going to take a short break. We will be back to continue our conversation on Off the Record with Miriam Carter of the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL, AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find us archived for your binge-listening pleasure. Take a stroll through the garden of our past shows. Listen to the hilarity of the summit between... Putin and Trump, as done by your host. Listen to the various folks from Moscow Radio and Moscow newspapers. Join in the hilarity of the past as you tiptoe through the tulips of the archive at nhtalkradio.com of Off the Record. And you can find us as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Um, where you can enjoy us on your tablet, on your phone, on your 21st century PDAs, any time of the day or night. We're talking with Miriam Carter, the executive director of the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen, the oldest craft organization in the United States, the progenitor, the patriarch, matriarch of the craft movement in the country, whose annual League of New Hampshire Craftsmen Fair is coming up from August 3rd through August 11th at Mount Sunapee in a series of huge tents jammed with the most beautiful stuff you've ever seen or put your hands on or touched. And even if you have no intention of buying anything, it's absolutely worth a visit because, because it's just so Beautiful. It's an explosion of beauty that happens once a year here in New Hampshire that has no parallel that I know of anywhere. It's one of my favorite things to do. So, Miriam, we talked a little bit about the founding of the League. How many members are there? Uh, we, we fluctuate. We're between 700 to 750 members. Um, pe you know, people come and go. So we average it out around 730 right now. Um, but we're constantly having new membership members join us through our jury process. 
Is anybody, uh, is everybody from, is it only New Hampshire residents who are allowed to join? So we do have a 10-mile border that if someone lives within the Maine, Vermont, or Massachusetts border, 10 miles from New Hampshire, they are allowed to jury in. Mm -hmm. And if accepted, they become a member. And um, how many members, do you know the split between non-New Hampshire folks and New Hampshire folks? Oh, that's a good one. I didn't come prepared for that, but yeah, right. the majority are New Hampshire. Yeah. You know. So what other kinds of uh, activities does the league do? I mean, people, uh, there may be a lot of my listeners who are familiar with the, with the, the annual fair, mm -hmm. but what else is the league up to? Well, I got to talk about the fair a little bit more because um, we made a big change this year, which I'm very excited about. Formerly, we've had an ex uh, two exhibits in the lodge at the fairgrounds at right. the area. They have been moved outside, combined and moved outside to a new exhibit called Art, Craft, and Design, the Exhibition. Right. Before, that was living with craft. And craft work. So and it was craft work. clothing and other. Yeah. It was clothing, wearable clothing, and then craft you could live with. Right. So I just have to say, please come to the fair to see that alone. And also to remember that the fair is more than a shop experience we actually like to think of it as an educational experience because of all our demonstrations it's amazing um, people often say oh I, I'm just I don't need to shop and as you just said just go and experience it because it really is a celebration of our organization and the incredible talent in this country or in this state excuse yeah. me so uh, let, while we're uh, let we'll stay right there t talk to me a little bit about what we can what what kinds of demonstrations we'll see at the fair and Talk a little bit. Of, let's talk about a little bit about uh, if there's music also. And yeah, we okay, great. Um, yeah. So we have music daily that accompanies the. It's a great compliment to the craftsman. Uh, it's all original music, so we create original work. So we want original music. Um, we also have some amazing uh, demonstrations this year. Harry Bassett is returning as our glass blower. He's been there for many years, but he uh, is returning this year. He took a, a leave of absence for a bit. Steve Proctor um, makes these amazing five to eight, seven foot big clay vessels and he'll actually be demonstrating from Wednesday through Sunday how he does that process it's not to be missed he turns them on a on a um, wheel but then he combines he kind of builds it as he goes it's well worth coming to see uh, we have demonstrations in uh, quilt making and and um Oh, whatever, fly fishing, all sorts of things going on. If you go to our website, nhcrafts.org, you'll find all the information on the fair and what we are offering there. And people can also eat. They can eat, yeah. And what's <coughs> really exciting with this change, we changed the model up this year, which was what I like to do as a creative person, change it up, make it interesting. So for the first time ever, we have several artisanal food offerings, Thai food, Southwest Foods, Live Juice in Concord is coming up with a new division. It's called LJ's, and they'll be there serving Southwestern fare. And we also have brick oven-fired pizza, which are organic and amazing, and smoothies, wonderful fresh smoothies. And there's always ice cream. It's probably the biggest seller at the mountain, lots of ice cream on a warm summer day. Man, oh, man. And how many tents? Oh, how many tents? Oh, I think we've got 30, 35 tents. So remember, Holy some of these are, uh, um, and I might be exaggerating because yeah. it just seems like they go on forever. Um, but we basically have um, eight, I'm going to say probably more like 20 tents, actually, but huge. The big, they're big circus tents, so they're filled with craftspeople. 200 booths of artists in their and their work in a booth, and an additional 150 artists selling their work in our exhibitions. Man, oh man. Yeah. And then what's going on for us? Well, we're really excited. We just opened a new gallery in Key, New Hampshire. So we have nine galleries right now. Um, we're thrilled about this. Our mission is to support the livelihood and 
first of all, the creation of craft and those who rely on it for their livelihoods. So giving them opportunities to sell their work is what we do best, and also to educate the public about what craft is. So these galleries have wonderful classes. They have incredible managers who talk about craft 24-7, one of the days they're open or of the year. Um, they are amazing, and what makes me really happy at a time when brick and mortar is, you know, becoming an issue that we are opening a gallery versus closing galleries. So right. that speaks to our legacy as an organization, the work of our members, and the loyal supporters of our organization. We are a nonprofit. We do rely on financial support, and our biggest fundraising event is the annual Craftsman's Fair. So you're kind of you're kind of the anti Amazon. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't expect to see drones delivering <laughs> uh, coffee tables from the League of New Hampshire craftsmen anytime no, soon. Uh, nor do I. Uh, yeah. Nor do I. I think there's something to be said for um, what we do and immersing yourself in you know, your excitement of this event is what I love to hear about. I, I was a working craftsman for 32 years. What was your craft? Fiber. I'm a felt maker. I was one of the first original. I shouldn't say this. I was one of the first felt makers in the country before felt became felt felt became chenille, like the new chenille um, and so I was begging people to buy felt now it's wonderful to see the creations that are being made in felt and and by everyone you know children it's it's excellent but um, I'm always excited to see people come into the the booth and to really explore it's an opportunity to meet the artists get to know the artists talk to them about what their inspiration is um, we have some wonderful individuals in our organization a lot of characters um, and many of the people who show at this fair have been doing it for 20 30 40 years so they are experienced and this is their big event right I mean I go I when I go I, I see I see people I've known you know I've known and and have met over over the years um, and I have a lot of, you know, I have, I, I have dear friends who are, uh, who, who were and, and friends who are uh, craftsmen. I mean, the, the work is, is, is so unique and extraordinary. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, my friend Peter Block, for mm. example. Now, I don't know. I think Peter may have retired from, make, from doing his wooden Actually, shades. he hasn't retired, but he, he has now... Um, he still makes his beautiful shades and his beautiful woodwork. He isn't showing it the, the show anymore, but he now has a business with drones yeah. where he does flyovers. So he actually helps us and has given us some beautiful shots of the show. Right. But his um, Every year I get asked about Peter because he was kind of a celebrity in the world of wood and at the fair. So we miss him, but he's still you know very much part of the league, just in a different form. Folks, you, you've got to imagine this um, iconic craftsman, um, my, de my dear friend Peter Block, who's Whose uh, whose spouse Kathy Lowe is a musician that uh, Pego and I have played with. In fact, we've played on this station. We come and do a uh, Christmas a Christmas a Christmas holiday show uh, on the station. But Peter uh, has c created lampshades out of turning solid blocks of wood into opaque lampshades. It's the most extraordinary. It's the most extraordinary thing. I mean, and that's just one example of the level of of craft um, that the league supports and uh, has as as members. You know, what's striking to me is the the fair is is like this giant family reunion <laughs> with hundreds of craftspeople, many of whom work in. In, in kind of isolation, Absolutely. work work on their own, 
um, for months at a time. Then they start, you know, there is a kind of a, a, a trail of craftsmen's fairs and festivals where people can show their craft. But it's this juxtaposition between the this unique isolation where the craftsperson is just doing their thing in their studio or shop or at home or wherever and then goes out into go out into the public to uh, yeah. meet and greet and 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 sell sell the work it's it's an it's it's ancient at the same time it's very modern you know I used to tell people that I lived my life as an act of faith because let's face it I was making work in my studio isolated what came to me is what I created and then I had the marketing piece and all the things I should do but is a business but I would prepare and hope that the economy would remain good that um, Wall Street would remain solid the weather would cooperate and that a lot of people would show up for the event and oh by the way I hope they like what I made Um, so they're taking a risk and I think that's part of the charm that they're really living in the moment and they're um, doing what they're meant to do it's not your normal work experience for most. And here right. I am, the executive director, after 30, 32 years of being an, a working fiber artist, um, with the same exact passion that I had for that work, but in this job. But I remember that the, everybody's working really hard right now, and their attention is strictly on getting ready for the fair. And I also want to add, you, you're speaking to the beauty of the work, and it's an entire price range that we offer. Uh, it's not all high-end work. Mm-hmm. It's, I love the fact that our craftspeople are aware that they have to make craft affordable and attainable, and they do so. Um, and I'm grateful to that because that keeps the movement alive. Well, it's a business. It is a business. It is a business. And, you know, what, I know you're a board member at Arts for an H, which is the statewide advocacy organization mm-hmm. seeking to educate people about the value of art and craft and seeking to connect uh, artists and crafts uh, persons and, and seeking to advocate for public investment um, in the arts. So it's good to hear that the state in some ways has been and is a, is a partner uh, with the league. Um, that's, it's, it's really, really important. And I think some people may, you know, probably don't think about the economic impact of uh, the business of craft mm-hmm. is, 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 is very big. It's really significant in New Hampshire. Um, uh, folks, think about the economic impact of the annual fair at Sunapee and what it means for the region. Um, it's really, it's really, it, it's, it's big stuff, and it's the kind of thing that uh, the public needs to support, not just with attending and buying craft, but it, it merits state support and state investment because it brings in people from all over the world and is a huge boost for the economy of that region. I want to be really clear how they partnered with us is through a grant called JPP, which is the Joint Promotional um, Program. And basically, it's through marketing. So we put up dollars for marketing. They match it. We were able to build our budget this year to increase that spending. So they help us draw people in. um, And that's how they continue to support us. Also, they're important partners in the model that we have at Mount Sunny because just think of it as a state-owned park or ski area, um, which is now leased to a corporate entity which is partnering with a major nonprofit in the state. Um, and the influence that we bring you know, financially to that region is significant. Our craftspeople sold about $2.2 million worth of sales of craft last year at the event. Um, our galleries sell about $2 million worth of craft throughout the year. Uh, and that's just what we do 
as an organization, all those members who are displaying their work or selling their work all the time in their own communities as well outside the communities? The, the leverage of investment uh, in the arts is enormous. When, when you think about what you've talked about is the direct uh, revenue, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, for, for the craftspersons, but when you think about what that actually translates into the community mm -hmm. in terms of other services that hotels. are used, hotels, the materials, the transportation, mm -hmm. and everything else yep. that goes into it, we're talking about a huge, huge impact for something that is important, and it's not just economically important. The League of New Hampshire Craftsmen and this fair and everything you do all throughout the year is critical to the social and cultural fabric of the state. I dare say that for many, many people, when they think of New Hampshire, they now think of New Hampshire in terms of the craft. Um, and the way it is woven into the social and cultural fabric of the state, it is inseparable. It is perhaps one of the, the, the best branding that New Hampshire has. I totally agree, and we are working very hard for the state to recognize that and to continue their support through um, any discussion that we have regarding the creative economy and the importance of it. And um, whether it's through Arts for New Hampshire board or through my board, um, we are working very hard to continuing advocacy for our, our efforts and our mission. We're talking with Miriam Carter, the executive director of the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen, whose annual fair is at Mount Sunapee from August 3rd through August 11th. Don't miss it. What a show we had. Chris Ryan and I took our elected representatives at every level, Republicans and Democrats, to task over the loss of statesmanship, discussing the impact of the testimony of Robert Mueller, who disappointed Democrats, but who clearly showed in his report the necessary path to accountability for a corrupt and greedy denizen of the White House who needs to be held accountable by the American people for his misdeeds. And then switching gears, we had a great conversation with Miriam Carter, the executive director of the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen, whose annual fair is coming up from August 3rd to August 11th at Mount Sunapee, an explosion of fabulous craft that everybody should see. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of Off the Record. See you then.